1: coming up this hour why are so many people upset about president biden's national day of prayer proclamation and then we're joined by mike glenn to ask this question what does it look like to be light in a dark world you're listening to the common good Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today as my normal co-host Aubrey Sampson is taking the week off. She's enjoying some rest and relaxation, some vacation. So we hope that Aubrey is having a great time uh, and we hope that you are doing well out there. You may have seen on the news today a big move on the vaccine front as Pfizer was approved by the FDA to be used now in kids and adolescents ages 12 to 16. This is a big move. Uh, Some of you out there, you're like, that is not right. I don't think that my kids should be getting vaccines. That is your choice. Totally understand that. Others of you, you're like, where can I go right now to get a shot in my kid's arm? I get that as well. Uh I, I do. I think I think we have to show grace to one another as we wrestle with these topics as parents and as individuals. But what this will do is is ensure, I hope, even more that school looks much more normal next year, churches reopen uh to normalcy and uh that life just feels more normal. I was reading another article today in which they said uh the CDC, someone at the CDC said that there is uh, basically no evidence of casual contact passing the coronavirus outside, outdoors. And so the person was calling into question uh, why people would wear masks outside. But I even took from reading that article going, OK, like, like we can do this. Like we are on the back end of this. Some of you feel like we're done. Others of you feel like we're still in the middle of it. But for me, I feel like we're coming out of this. We're on the back end of this. Everyone who's Basically wanted to get vaccined over the age, get the vaccine over the age of 16 has been able to get it by now, or you're close to being having your second shot. Uh, and as that happens, it feels like, uh, hopefully we could kind of move in this direction of kind of reopening and, and getting back to some normalcy. I can't wait for the day. Uh, when when we're no longer having that discussion of what can we do, what can't we do, where do I need to wear We went out to dinner last night, my wife and I, with some friends. And and I just always forget, when do I need to wear my mask? When do I need to take it off? And uh, I can't wait till those days are kind of behind us. And it feels like we're still moving in that direction. The vaccines are a huge portion of that. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't been vaccinated, to at least consider it. Talk to your doctor, talk to somebody you trust, and uh, keep doing our part to uh, moving towards some normalcy, and the, the nice weather helps, right? The nice weather when we get to be outside and enjoy our family and friends outside. Uh, they're basically saying that is of of zero risk, and so uh, go ahead and take advantage of that. Enjoy being outside if you're not comfortable being inside. So that's kind of our pandemic update. Things moving in the right direction. I'm excited for the show today. We're going to be joined in a little while by Mike Glenn. Mike Glenn is a senior pastor at Brentwood Baptist Church, an enormous church down in kind of the Nashville, Tennessee, Brentwood, Tennessee area. Uh, And Mike has written a blog uh, blog post at Christianity Today at Jesus Creed uh, recently called The Failure of the Light. A fascinating idea about what does it look like to be light in the darkness and his point being How much time do we spend yelling at the darkness versus being bright lights in the darkness? And so we're going to discuss with Mike, what's it look like to live in this culture as light as Jesus calls us? I think that's a really important conversation. We're going to have Mike joining us in just a little bit. Well, this got a lot of news, a lot of headlines the other day. President Biden uh, gave the annual uh, National Day of Prayer proclamation. The National Day of Prayer since 1952 has fallen on May the 6th. Every U.S. president must issue a proclamation designating a National Day of Prayer. Oh, and this year it fell on May the 6th. And so his proclamation read this. Uh, It read, today we remember and celebrate the role that the healing balm of prayer can play in our lives and in the life of our nation. As we continue to confront the crises and challenges of our time, from a deadly pandemic to the loss of lives and livelihoods in its wake, to a reckoning on racial justice, to the existential threat of climate change, he wrote, Americans of faith can call upon the power of prayer to provide hope and uplift us uh, for the work ahead. He said on the National Day of Prayer, we unite with purpose and resolve to recommit ourselves to the core freedoms that help define and guide our nation from its earliest days. And finally, he said, we celebrate our incredible good fortune that as Americans, we can exercise our convictions freely, no matter our faith or beliefs. Let us find in our prayers, however, they are delivered the determination to overcome adversity, rise above our differences, and come together as one nation to meet this moment in history. Uh, and, and so this got a lot of people angry. and you wonder why. You're like, when at first blush when you read that, you're going, okay, whatever, it sounds like a nice proclamation. Uh, and uh, there, this grew a this drew a lot of anger, especially obviously from the other side of the aisle, from the Republican side. And the question is why? Right? What drew the ire because you know, prayer's a good thing and here we go. Well, here's what it was. This was the first ever, national day of prayer proclamation to not use the word God. Biden became the first president to omit the word God from the national day of prayer proclamation. Instead, he said things like giving thanks and we all pray. And he used it to also tout some of his initiatives. And that made people uh, really angry. Uh, So David Brody from the Christian Broadcasting Network said, uh, how do you release a proclamation about prayer and not mention God at all? Of course, it mentions climate change. To Truly, he said this is pathetic and not surprising. President Trump last year, he said he mentioned God multiple times. Obama in 2015, President Obama multiple times, President Bush. And they go back in this article, of Christian headlines. And I kind of have two thoughts on this. One, why are we surprised by this? Uh, and I'm not even saying that because of President Biden. President Biden's a, a devoutly Catholic man. Uh, but this is the political world that we live in. It's the stream that we flow in. Right. It's the make sure not to ruffle any feathers. And the mention of God increasingly ruffles feathers. In some ways, I understand it. Right. Because if we're going to have freedom of religion, then there can't be a state religion. And so Biden's trying to walk that line. But also, we as Christians, you need to understand that, that the tides are changing a little bit. And, and I say that as in this to say, like let's not put our hope in our government like to be the, uh, the ones proclaiming our faith, to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to proclaim uh, the, God that, that of, uh, the, the God of the universe. Uh, this reminds us again in a small way here, but it reminds us again that we don't have a state religion, but we have a God that we go out and we share this good news with people that, that our government is increasingly not going to do that, nor should it. But that the church is uh, we're going to talk to Mike Glenn about here in a little bit, that the church can stand up and go, no, let me tell you about the God that we pray to. It's like Paul in the book of Acts going to Athens, going, you pray to this God that you do not know. Let me tell you who this God is. Like That's the opportunity of the church right now. So does it disappoint me to see the word God completely omitted from the National Day of Prayer proclamation? Sure it does. Am I surprised? No, I'm not. And here's what it does. I don't think that we go and we shake our fists, but instead I think it reminds us as the church That we are the ones to raise up the call and go, this is who we pray to. This is the God in whom our hope lies. This is the God that you can know in Jesus Christ. And we become the lights. We become the ambassadors. And it's not on our government, nor should it, nor will it ever be. And in fact, you need to know increasingly it won't be. But that raises the opportunity for the church to go, let me tell you this good news. So that's what I thought about uh, when I saw everybody kind of going wild about what uh, Biden said or didn't say. My first thought was, are we surprised? And my second thought is like, church, let's take this up. Let's be the church. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Mike Glenn. He is the senior pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church, a frequent contributor to the Jesus Creed blog, where recently he wrote a blog post entitled The Failure of the Light. Mike Glenn is going to join us next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Joined normally by Aubrey Sampson, but Aubrey is out on vacation hopefully enjoying some rest and relaxation. Well, we are thrilled to be joined by the senior pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church down in the Nashville, Tennessee area. His name is Mike Glenn. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, Brian, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before I want to dive into this blog post specifically, you wrote at Jesus Creed at Christianity Today about the it's called the failure of the light, which I think is such an important topic. But before we do that, could you introduce yourself to our audience, however you'd like, just so they can get to know you a little bit?
2: Oh, gosh, okay. Uh, I am a, a proud grandfather of three granddaughters and uh, one grandson. Finally got the grandson on the last uh, <laughs> uh, effort there. Uh, been at Brentwood Baptist Church for 30 years, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's been an amazing run. Uh, yeah. this, it's a great church. Gene and I have been married for uh, 41 years in, uh, in uh, June, so... Um, I'm just a pretty kind of boring guy. I just do the same thing over and over again
3: every day. So you know,
1: that's so. how it is. And as we said, you're down in the Nashville area where everybody from Chicago is moving right now. So. Oh man! They, they,
2: they say if you sell a house in uh, in Nashville, that you can't afford to buy your own house back by the afternoon. <laughs>
1: that's so true. That's right. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. Hey, before we jump into the blog, I know we say we're going to jump into the blog, but you've been at the same church for 30 years. What is <laughs> Yeah, like what kind of changes have come and what's been the fruit in your own life of being in the same place for 30 years?
2: The um the interesting thing is I have pastored four or five churches at the same address. Oh. Um yeah. So I've been um able to usually when a pastor leaves a church is to do something else or or to uh exercise a different muscle and I've been able to do that every time the uh the church has been in a in a transition. So Every time we've come to a moment where the church had to had to change something to grow and to, and to take hold of the next step, uh, it, it's been a new challenge for me, which was fun. Uh, we've gone from a uh, community church to a regional congregation to now multi-site congregation. And uh, we've uh, a- each of our campuses have their own pastor, so we Ooh. take very seriously the training of, of pastors. So that's now... And, and I'm kind of like a proud father, you know, I just I, I, I get more I get more joy out of their success than I kind of do my own now. So so it's it's, it's been a lot of fun. And you and you get to watch people grow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is that some of the children here are now my bosses. <laughs> you know, That's awesome. That's <laughs> so great. so I tell them I said, I was good to you when you were in youth group, wasn't I? <laughs> I? You know, I was kind to you, wasn't I? So
1: it's kind of interesting. Uh, well, That's really fascinating. That is fascinating. Well, as I said, at Christianity Today, they've got the Jesus Creed, uh, which is a blog by Scott McKnight, but he brings other people on to write regularly, which you do as well. Uh, And you wrote on May the 7th, so just a couple days ago, called The Failure of the Light. And it's this idea. Well, I'll let you explain the idea. Explain this idea of light, uh, that Jesus is calling for us to be light in the darkness. And we'll unpack it a little bit more. Okay.
2: Um, Anytime you're... uh Uh, You walk into a room and you flip on the light switch and the Mm -hmm. light bulb blows out. It scares you to death. Mm -hmm. But you don't say the dark killed another light bulb. Mm. You say the light bulb went out. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's a dark room, the way you remedy to that is not to push out the darkness. It's to change the light bulb. Mm. And it doesn't take a whole lot of light for the room uh, to, to be well lit. In fact, the darker it is, the less light you actually need to see well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the first thing that, uh, that when Jesus calls us to be the light, our first response is there's not enough of us. Mm. It, the job is too big. There's so much darkness in the world that we can't overcome it. That actually helps us in our mission. Yes. Because it doesn't take as many people or as much light for everybody else to be able to see their way. Mm. And if we as a church keep complaining about how dark the world is, the real issue is not that the world is dark, but that the light has failed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you agree? You wrote on here, every time I turn on the television, there's some expert telling me how quote dark these days are. Is it, is our culture darker, in your opinion? Then we'll talk about what it means for the church to be the light. Are we darker, or is it just kind of a, a narrative that's going around? Right now? I
2: don't. I don't know that it's darker, or we just see it so much more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. It, 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 and 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 what I if you tell my church is, you you are becoming disciple by whatever you pay attention to. That's good. And yeah. too many of our people spend way too much time on cable news, mm. and uh, of of both sides and uh, and they become depressed anxious whatever because of that rather than spending time with other believers uh doing ministry work where you see God work studying scripture which is uh where Christ tells us all the time that this is where your life is yeah. it's, it's in those relationships it's not in, in watching that uh how bad it is in and in, in somewhere somewhere else so
1: yeah. What's it look like for us to be the light? Like, how do we, when you said, you know, we have failed to be the light, that might be the issue. When the church or we as individuals are doing that well, we're lighting up well. What does that look like?
2: Uh, first of all, don't overlook uh, the importance of doing family well. Mm, that's good. Of being a good husband and a good wife. Uh, most of our young people now are. Uh, trying to do marriage, and they have never seen a healthy father. Mm. They've never seen a healthy mother. Uh, they do not know what a Christ-centered marriage looks like. Uh, so don't overlook the first obvious step of being a a healthy, Christ-centered marriage in your neighborhood. Mm. Don't overlook the, uh, the, the kindness of being a good neighbor, of being aware of what's going on in your neighbor's lives, of uh, uh, responding when there's a need. And and the first thing is uh, everybody says, well, that's that's not significant that I took uh, dinner to a neighbor who is mm-hmm. uh, who's in a grief situation or or bringing a new baby home. And, and you do something like that. Those little marks of kindness, uh, which is one of the, the fruit to the spirits, kindness is 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 that. First opening of of of, of evangelism, hospitality, uh, that 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 is available to us, and it doesn't take a whole lot of time or a whole lot of effort uh, to to become known as a person who is makes the world better when you show up. Yes, yes. And the the other thing that historically, the, the church has has engaged the world successfully three ways: uh, education, healthcare, and poverty. We do that better than just about anybody. Hmm. Uh, and, and as I, you know, as I tell my atheist friends, you never see a hospital that says, "Saint nothing, (laughs) you know, that's every, you know, most colleges have a faith based beginning. Most, most medical centers have a faith based beginning. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, when we engage, uh, the local school, when you just show up and tell the principal, we don't have an agenda, we're just here to help you serve these kids. What do you need? Hmm. Uh, just those little things uh, will open up the conversation. Why are you here? Why did you stay? Uh, that will open up the conversation of, of, about Jesus and your relationship with him.
1: Absolutely. The other voice you hear is Mike Glenn. He's senior pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church, frequent contributor at the Jesus Creed blog. That's what we're talking about right now, his his blog up at the Jesus Creed called The Failure of the Light. Uh, you can find him at MikeGlennOnline.com. That's MikeGlennOnline.com. Mike, as we continue to talk about your your blog post here about us being lights in the darkness, what's the pushback you get uh, maybe in your church or when you talk to people about this? Is it time? Like, I don't have time to to get to know my neighbors. Is there anything else? What's the sort of pushback you get from people?
2: Uh, There's always the time thing. Uh, And the interesting thing that happened in the pandemic is we found out that a lot of stuff that we're busy with doesn't matter. (laughs) <laughs> yes, you it's know, so true. we we were we, we we did fine without it we we thought if we were had to go home and sit that we would all die but we didn't mm-hmm. in fact a lot of us discovered some some new rhythms and new patterns to life that uh that are actually better for us that's right uh and uh the danger is as we get out of the pandemic that we're going to we're going to crown our lives back again uh the other thing is uh is uh, when you grow up in a uh, a evangelical community, as I did, as, as I do, there's always this tension between uh, evangelism and social justice and, mm. and 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 that kind of stuff. And so when you start doing ministry that is on the front end, rather than uh, evangelism being on the front end, then people say, "Well, you're not being evangelistic." But you have to understand, we we live in a time where the ministry comes before the message. Uh, if you come in and say, "Hey, I want to, I want to share Christ with you," people will immediately turn you off. That's right. But if you walk in and say, "Hey, we're here to do the flower bed for the school system, uh, for the, the the local school here, or we're here to to tutor a reading class," sooner or later, uh, if you're consistent with your ministry, then people will ask, "Why are you here?" And then mm-hmm. that opens the door. But people have to see your love in action before they'll ask you about it yeah Uh, our world is pretty jaded now
1: yeah 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 Speaking of our world being jaded, uh, one of the new things you know you've been at your church you said for 30 years, well, one of the newer things now is social media and we talk about that often on the show that so much of our jadedness is driven by Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever else it might be what are what are the words of wisdom you give to your church about or your staff or whoever else it might be about social <laughs> media its dangers and like how to like kind of focus on really what's important
2: uh, first of all, Jesus was really blunt. Uh, In this, if anything gets in the way of your relationship with him, you don't do it. Mm. And a lot of us need to to bring under uh, some strict accountability how we use social media. Mm -hmm. If social media makes you angry, if social media takes your mind in places that are not helpful, then you don't need to be on it. And it's okay if you're not on social media, <laughs> uh, you know, we live, people ask me all the time, well, how do we live without cell phones? And how do we live? We, we live very well. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it life, life was good. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you, if you're on there to, 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 to stay in touch with your family, if you're making your business case on that, then there are a lot of good reasons uh, for that. Uh, but there are a lot of dangers and, uh, uh, you know, the old preachers would call it demonic activity on, mm-hmm. on, on social media that we need to be on guard and, and sometimes it's just not worth it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And kind of along those lines, what do you think as someone who's pastored for a long time, I'm sure thought about these things in a fractured culture, we live in such a divided tribal culture right now. Mm -hmm. What does unity look like within your church, the individual church, but also kind of the bigger, uh, the big C church, how do we fight for unity and what does unity even look like these days?
2: Uh, unity happens when we hear each other's stories.
1: Mm, That's good.
2: Uh, when, uh, uh, one of, one of my favorite people in Nashville is Bishop Joseph Walker, who's the pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church. Uh, Bishop and I got to be friends, uh, um, because he's a social media ninja. The boy, the boy does social media in an amazing fashion. So I, I called him and I said, Hey, you got to coach me up on some of this. Mm-hmm. So we started meeting and then, and, uh, and then that de- developed into our friendship, which developed into a friendship between our churches. And uh, he is a pastor of a large African-American community. Uh, But when you sit and listen to, and we have the kind of friendship where we can ask very honest questions. And when you ask him, what is it like to be black in Nashville? And he tells you that, okay, now I understand your story. Hmm. Now I understand when, when he tells me that if he walks out of a mall, now this guy is, is sharp. He's, uh, there's nothing about him. That would cause you concern in any way, in any fashion of that, in the way he looks, he has to pace himself. If he's walking out of a mall with a with a a white woman at the same time, Hmm. he'll he'll be careful how close he is because he knows it will make her nervous.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I see. That, that's where, okay, now I understand. Now we can find some kind of ground to begin to, to, to work together to build a, a little better world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really good to know each other's stories. That's, a, that's a, cause we wrestle with unity, right? Jesus talks right. about it and, and we know it's important, but it's an easy thing to preach on. It's a hard thing to do. Right. <laughs> so,
2: right. right. Well, the assumption, the assumption is that the difference, uh, negates a friendship. And a lot of times the difference is what adds spice to the
1: friendship. Oh, it's good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, before we let you go, I want to make sure uh, a book you put out in 2012 that I think is a fascinating title. It's called the gospel of yes. Can you explain that title and just that book? I'd love for people to pick up your book if they're listening.
2: Oh, I'd love that. Uh, I grew up in a church where we were told what not to do. <laughs> and every Sunday we'd get together and praise God we hadn't done anything. Um, so, the part of salvation that really resonated with uh, some young adults that I was working with is when I said, uh, what is your yes? Hmm. How has Christ created you where he says, this is what you you were born for. Let's find your yes and everything else is no. Hmm. Rather than focusing on all the no's, just tell me your yes. Uh, I married Jeannie 41 years ago. That is my yes. Everybody mm-hmm. else is no. Okay, <laughs> yes. but I do, but but I don't get up going. Okay, I got to say no to everybody else. No, I am saying yes to her every day. That's a lot. That's a lot more positive way to live. Yeah. If I say, hey, this is this, these are the gifts I have, and these are the gifts I am going to say yes to, and I am not going to worry that that I don't have the other gifts. That's great. Other people in the church have those gifts. They say yes to their yes together. In the diversity, all of us together make known the glory of God in a way that one person or one people group can't.
1: Yeah. Amen. I get that book again. It's called the gospel of yes. It says we have missed the most important thing about God finding it changes everything. You can find it at Amazon uh, or wherever else uh, you get your books, Mike. I'm thrilled that you joined us. I I always like to end with this question for pastors. Uh, because I think it's it's just a it it helps people feel hopeful. Uh, let me ask you this, ask it this way: Are you hopeful for the church as we come out of the pandemic? Are you hopeful for the future of the church? And if so, what is it that gives you hope for the church?
2: Oh yes, uh, very very hopeful for the church because our culture is asking questions only Jesus can answer.
1: Yeah. That's that is really well succinctly put, because you hear so many people say, I'm not hopeful uh, that every time we get a pastor on, we're like, tell me where you cope comes. And, and it is so good. Mike, it is so great to meet you. It is really great to have you on again. Mike Glenn is a senior pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church, frequent contributor at the Jesus Creed blog. We'd encourage you to pick up his book, The Gospel of Yes. You can learn more about Mike at his website, MikeGlennOnline.com, and also on Twitter, at Mike Mike, thanks so much. This was a real pleasure for us. Thank you, Brian. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Flying solo today as my co-host, Aubrey Sampson. Uh, is off enjoying a vacation this week. Aubrey will be back with us on Monday, which we are looking forward to. One of my favorite pastors to listen to, and a well-known pastor, is a pastor out of Texas by the name of Tony Evans. And Tony Evans uh, is a phenomenal speaker. Okay, let's just get that out there. He is, if you've ever sat and listened to Tony Evans speak, it's mesmerizing. It's one of those we've joked before on this show that there are certain pastors that when you hear them as a pastor, you go, wow, I should never speak again. Like, I can't do that. Uh, and so Tony Evans is a master communicator, a wonderful pastor. Uh, his family has, has gone through some tragedy this year and the loss of Tony Evans' wife. Uh, but, but I found a clip that I, it just got me thinking. I, I wanted to look it up because I'd heard it before. Uh, and it just got me thinking about so many things, about the uh, about the pur- purpose of parenthood. Like, what do we as parents, like, what is our God-given role, or one of our God-given roles with our parents, and what effect do we have on our children? You're going to hear that here in a second. And then, what do we do as parents when we've wronged our kids? Uh, what do we do when we've uh, not done the right thing? And also, as a child or somebody uh, growing up, what do we do with the hurts that maybe our parents have in, inflicted upon us intentionally or unintentionally? I think this is so important. So what you're going to re- uh, hear here is Tony Evans talking about an interaction that he had with his son, Anthony. His son, Anthony Evans, who is a worship leader and an artist and a, uh, and a singer, uh, he's now grown. Um, but this was when Anthony Evans was younger. And Tony Evans says he came upon his son playing the piano. And he said, hey, stop playing the piano. Let's play football. That Tony Evans kind of had this this vision of a man that said, no, no, men play football. We don't play the piano. And it had a hugely detrimental effect on his son. I want you to hear this interview, this kind of back and forth with Tony Evans and his son, Anthony. And then we'll reflect upon it.
2: One of the principles in scripture is when it says, train for a child the way you should go. You know, a Hebrew word there is train up a child according to their bent and what I was doing is I was taking my bent and I was imposing it on Anthony.
4: There there were years where I felt disconnected because I wasn't the football player's son and it actually messed with my mind because of the way that between my dad being that football dad and culture in general and then being an African-American male on top of that where emotions aren't necessarily a thing we talk about or discuss, or you're weak if you let them come up. So I had this dichotomy between what culture says masculinity is, and then David, who's a guy who's a guy after God's own heart, who was always on on being led by his emotions and having tried having to try to rein that in. But he was a man after God's own heart. Yeah. Um, so I'm working with that in, internally. But then also I have a dad who when things are brought to his attention i'll never forget being 27 and staying at their house when i one of these times i'm in dallas and i tell him how things affected me growing up i'm having this conversation with him and my mom telling them how i felt growing up as i tried to be the third child peacekeeper and keep everything on the inside and bottled up and my dad at the i'm 27 years old he opens the door and proceeds to apologize about how i felt how he he didn't know he didn't make excuses it wasn't like i'm sorry but i it was just, I'm sorry about the way that you thought I did not know that. And if I would have known that, I would have done things different. I thought that I was helping and I didn't, wasn't help. I mean, he went, that was at 27. So to have that kind of moment, it's the same thing that happened with you and your dad in a different way. It's that moment changed a heart that was actually getting hard and callous toward faith in general. And he, he actually didn't know that. Like I was singing and running around, but I was doing it to get the acceptance for the performance and all that stuff. And I was about to be done with it all until that apology happened.
1: I mean, there's so much good stuff there. Tony Evans owns the fact that he said, uh, I told my son, let you should be playing football. And Anthony basically says, like, that rocked his world. Because I love this idea of the Hebrew word that he says means, like, bent. Like, what are you bent towards? What has God put in your heart? What are your Passions and what you want to be. Tony Evans says, "I wanted my son's bent to be towards football, to be towards quote unquote manly things. That I wanted to train him up in the way that the world says a man plays football, a man does this." And and Anthony's going, "I I I want to play the piano." I want to sing. I want to be an artist. And they have they had a bit of an impasse that said, okay, their ideas of what a son and what a man should be kind of missed each other. And then Tony Evans talks about there that that he was convicted of. No, no, no. I'm imposing what I want for my son upon my son. And Anthony Evans basically says, until my dad apologized to me, which is a whole nother thing we're going to talk about here in a second. But until my dad recognized it and apologized, It not only had a detrimental effect on, on, say, their relationship or how Anthony Evans viewed himself, but Anthony Evans was ready to give up his faith. He was like, well, I don't even want to to be a part of this Christian faith. That should be a sobering thought for us as parents, that that we're not in charge of our kids following or not following Jesus, but how we interact, what they see in our lives, what they they see from us when we speak to them in many ways, in many times, will often – be the picture they get of their heavenly father. And Anthony Evans is like, I didn't want, I was ready to give it all up. But then the turning point in their relationship was when Tony Evans looked at his son, who was grown at this point. This didn't happen right after the interaction, was when Tony Evans looked at his son and he apologized. And he said, hey, I I was trying to impose upon you what I wanted for you, what I thought you should be but this is who God made you. And this freedom was unlocked in his son to go, okay, I thought this is who God made me be. Now my dad's affirming it. I have my father's approval. Uh, and, and now I can run after this. And it changed the trajectory of his life. Let me point out, parents, one of the most important things we can do for our children when they're younger, when they're in their teen years, when they are older, and even out of the house, I believe One of the most powerful things we can do for our children is to apologize and ask their forgiveness when we've done wrong things, when we have wronged them. A lot of times as parents, we kind of feel like I'm the authority. I should never apologize or I will look weak. But in fact, where will our kids learn uh, what it looks like to apologize, what it looks like to say I was wrong, what it looks like to ask for forgiveness, what it looks like to show contrition? Where will our kids learn that if not from their parents? And here Tony Evans says, I made the point to look at my son and apologize for something that happened years ago. And look at what happened. It transformed his son's life. His adult son at that point, it transformed his life. I just love this reminder that our God-given role as parents is to uh, shepherd, is to point our children to Jesus and to help unlock for them uh, the bent that God has given to them, the passions and the talents God has put in their lives. And then when we mess up, we tell our kids, I'm sorry, forgive me. I didn't mean a uh, dad was wrong there. Mom was wrong there. Can't, will you forgive me? Now our kids understand the power of forgiveness. So grateful for the words of Tony Evans, the openness here of Tony, And his son, Anthony, uh, just a a great picture of our role as parents. Well, coming up next, I want to talk about a disturbing story uh, from Julie Roy. He's talking about Mark Driscoll and the church he planted out in Arizona. We're going to talk about that story from Julie Roy's next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, how should we as Christians look at the death penalty? And then are we really called to change the world? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today as Aubrey Sampson. My co-host is out for the week. She'll be back with us on Monday. Until then, we're going to fill this show with guests and uh, just a lot of fun along the way, but we look forward to Aubrey being back. Uh, Julie Royce, who has been on the show multiple times. In fact, Julie Royce was our first ever guest on The Common Good way back over two years ago. She broke a lot of the news about Harvest Bible Chapel. Uh, she's done a lot of extensive work uh, on Ravi Zachariah's story and others. Julie Royce, uh, she's a bit of an investigative reporter. Think of her in those terms for the Christian world. And, uh, you know, like you think of on the news, an investigative reporter who's going to try to get to the bottom of something. Uh, that's kind of how Julie kind of positions her thing called the Roy's report. You can find her at julieroys.com. And yesterday she came out with kind of an explosive um Long article about Mark Driscoll. You may not be familiar with Mark Driscoll, but so let me give you a little bit of background. Julie's uh, article is entitled Mark Driscoll accused of cult-like actions, 24-7 surveillance, mandated loyalty. Uh, so Mark Driscoll famously, uh, started and led a church in Seattle called Mars Hill. Uh, and Mark Driscoll was known as kind of a man's man. That was kind of his shtick, kind of his Thing and he's also started and led Acts twenty nine, the church planting movement. Mark Driscoll uh, was kind of like a comet in the evangelical world. Ton of people listening to him online. Uh, kind of that 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 kind of young reformed um, kind of uh, group of people. Like Mark Driscoll was at the head of that. Well, Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill, there was a lot of stuff going on. Accusations of bullying, ex and ex- uh uh, accusations of plagiarism and some other things. And Mark Driscoll, uh, he was released, relieved of his duties at Mars Hill. And eventually Mars Hill ceased to exist within weeks. You could tell it was built around Mark Driscoll. Well, Mark Driscoll then went away for a little while, but then started a church in Scottsdale, Arizona called the Trinity Church. And that's where he is now. He leads that. And it's weird. Uh, Driscoll is, is a little different now. Uh, as now he very much runs the church with his wife. It's kind of a family thing. Well, people have asked, is he different now? Is is uh, Did he learn his lessons? Well, Julie Royce comes out with an article this week that basically says uh, no. Uh, but before we talk about what's going on at Trinity right now, I do want, to, want you to hear some audio of Mark Driscoll to get a feel for him Back when he was at Mars Hill, uh, Julian, this article is going to talk about how Mark Driscoll would frequently refer to the bus and that sometimes you got to run people over with the bus. Sometimes people have to be thrown off the bus. This is where she gets at. This is Mark Driscoll talking back at Mars Hill about people not kind of following him and being on the bus.
3: You cast vision for your mission. And if people don't sign up, you move on. You move on. There are people that are going to die in the wilderness and there are people that are going to take the hill. That's just how it is. Um, too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it will be a mountain by the time we're done. Um... You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. And uh, I'm just a, I'm just a guy who is like, look, we love you, but this is what we're doing. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus. They got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus. They got to get thrown off, because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else.
1: So as you can see, the way he talks kind of inspired people and made people feel really uncomfortable. So now he's at Trinity church and he seems a little different, but she writes this Mark Driscoll is once again, being accused of bullying, intimidation and spiritual abuse. Only this time the disgraced former Mars Hill pastor apparently has no elders to rein him in. And his tactics reportedly have grown more extreme and cult-like. She tells a long story uh, about a specific family. And then she says, Trinity's former head of security Chad Fries, a cybersecurity expert and a former Marine, said Trinity hired a private investigator to surveil this family 24-7. He says teams, including pastors, tracked this family as they went shopping even in their own neighborhood. Then he goes on to say that the entire church has an army of security to protect not just the church, but the entire Driscoll family who are treated, quote, like royalty. They said there's nowhere on the church campus where people are not being audio and video recorded to serve as a volunteer. One must sign non-disclosure agreements pledging to protect the confidentiality of all information. Uh, the church maintains a be on the lookout list, uh, for specific people who have spoken out against the church. Freeze went on to say it's disgusting, like a cult. The more you trust, the more trust you have on the spectrum, the higher the number, the more access you have. Basically, they literally have a number scale for people's loyalty and they will that that is a sliding scale and it's the loyalty to Mark Driscoll. Uh, and so it's talking about people leaving and how this is basically turned into the Mars Hill 2.0. They don't have a budget that people know of, uh, but that it's kind of in secret. And here's the big takeaway for me. Uh, there's two major takeaways for me. Uh, one is. Uh, there's a huge red flag that there is not an elder board at this new church right now. But instead, it's basically being run by Mark Driscoll and his family. Anytime, my friends, when there is a church that lacks accountability, that lacks oversight, that is a problem. Uh, there is no board there uh, with oversight. And that's a problem. And two, we've talked about this many times, is that the celebrity culture that we have grown within evangelicalism, within our churches, is a huge problem. Mark Driscoll was never, restra- he didn't go through a restoration process, he didn't go through anything, he just went and planted a new church and thousands of people came. Why? Because it's the celebrity preacher guy, it's Mark Driscoll, I want to be under him, I want to be in his orbit. This celebrity nature of our churches must stop. I don't know how it stops, uh, but it must stop because, uh, because that's not what our faith, we follow a savior who laid down his life. We followed a savior uh, who could have been a celebrity and wasn't. And I know for myself, I remember when Mark Driscoll was kind of early on in his mystery. I used, there was nobody that I listened to more because he talked differently, right? He talked differently than everybody. Uh, but, but I, Man, this idea of of it all runs through him, no accountability, no budget, uh, loyalty rating, it's scary. And it's all built on celebrity. And we must call this out and we must stop this because it's not what the church was meant to be. It's not about a person or a family. Non-disclosure agreements and hidden budgets and whatever else—I don't know, people. Uh, this is hard, and, and we got to talk about it, and we need to—we uh, need to call it out where we see it. This is at the Roy's report, Julie Roy's, uh, and uh, yeah, it's good reporting by Julie. You can read it uh, at your leisure at julieroys.com. Well, coming up next, I want to talk about the death penalty. Okay, I want to talk about the death penalty. Shane Claiborne. Uh, has had many big things to say about it. And I want to talk about what Shane has to say in this uh, a very challenging clip that we're going to listen to, and I want us to wrestle together about the death penalty. That's coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160 Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to the Common Good here on AM 1160 Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, doing the show by myself today. Uh, my co-host, Aubrey Sampson, is out in this week enjoying some rest, some relaxation, a vacation. Uh, so we're excited for her and excited for her to come back. She will be joining us again on Monday. Well, uh, I wanted to raise uh, what is often a hot-button issue for culturally, but also for us as the church and us as Christians, and that's the idea of the death penalty. Um, oftentimes... Uh, it is actually Christians who have been the ones who say uh, they are the most pro-death penalty. You open up the scriptures and you see uh, the death penalty in the Old Testament. You see an eye for an eye. You see these different things. And so uh, statistics tend to say that it is oftentimes uh, Christians who uh, have some of the greatest support for the death penalty. And this got me thinking this week, particularly because of this story. I don't know if you saw this story. It was out of the New York Times. Uh, four years after an execution, a different man's DNA is found on the murder weapon. Uh, lawyers request to conduct additional DNA testing before Liddell Lee was executed, uh, but they had been denied. So the story goes like this. That for 22 years, a man by the name of Liddell Lee uh, said he had been wrongly convicted of murder. He said, my dying words will always be as it has been. I'm an innocent man, he said in April of 2017. The day before officials in Arkansas administered a lethal injection. Well, four years later, lawyers affiliated with the Innocence Project and American Civil Liberties Union say DNA testing has revealed that genetic material on the murder weapon, which was never previously tested, in fact belongs to another man in a highly unusual development for a case in which a person has already been convicted and executed the new genetic profile has been uploaded to the national criminal database in an attempt to identify the mystery man. Patricia Young, uh, Lee's sister, has been fighting for years to prove that it was not her brother who had strangled and fatally uh, bludgeoned 26-year-old Deborah Reese in Arkansas in 1993. And so you read this story and you go, man, this guy was in fact innocent. Like he was telling the truth when he said, hey, Uh, I was, it wasn't me. And now they're looking at this, uh, at this weapon going, yeah, you know what, it's not him. And, and for me laying my cards on the table, when I read things like this, this only emboldens my belief that the death penalty is not something that, that we should be doing culturally as a nation. Uh, But it's also certainly not something that particularly pro-life Christians should be behind. Because in my view, at the very least, the very fact that somebody could be killed innocently, somebody that we could get it wrong, that it's not a foolproof system, is enough for me to say, well, then it we shouldn't be part of what we do. It shouldn't be on the table. It shouldn't be an option for the simple fact that we might kill an innocent person. But also for me, I say this uh, – If we are truly pro-life, if we are pro-life from the womb to the tomb, if we want to believe that God is a God who restores and transforms and can bring about life where there was death, he can bring about change, then I do believe that we can believe that even about the worst criminals there are. That that we can believe that even as a man or a woman sits on death row and they have committed horrific crimes that God can still bring restoration. God can still bring salvation. God can still bring transformation. And that because we believe that we hold out that hope and the death penalty then runs antithetical to that. I understand people who believe that the death penalty is used as a deterrent, but most, uh, sociologists and scholars don't believe in de- and, and, uh, That that even within states that have the death penalty versus states that don't, uh, it doesn't actually prove to be a deterrent. Statistics do not show it to be a deterrent. And if it's not a deterrent, then what what are we doing? And here's what I want you to do. I want I want to play a clip from Shane Claiborne. Uh, Shane Claiborne is one of the most outspoken. um, He is one of the most outspoken. Uh, proponents against the death penalty as a Christian. So he writes about it. And this is a clip of Shane Claiborne called Ending the Death Penalty. Let's listen to Shane Claiborne.
5: I believe that we... Can be the generation to end the death penalty. Executions go lower every year than the lowest they've been in 20 years. Death sentences are the lowest they've been in a generation. Uh, when you ask millennials, they're millennial Christians overwhelmingly against the death penalty. In fact, Americans as a whole were polled, and 95% said Jesus would be against the death penalty. We just gotta get the Christians on board. So I'm excited today, though. I'm excited that we can be the generation to end the death penalty. It doesn't take courage. A year, a generation after slavery has ended to say slavery is wrong. It takes courage to say slavery is wrong when it was still legal. This is our moment, my brothers and sisters, to stand on the side of life and declare an end to the death penalty in the name of the executed
1: and risen Jesus the more I listen to people like Shane Claiborne and the more I read them, the more that I agree that again, if we are going to be pro-life and and friends, I am like, that is at the core of, of my belief system about that is the lens through which I look at things like, like why do I hate abortion and want to see it done away with because it is the most vulnerable in our society being discarded and being, being killed. And so we as the church need to rise up and say, no, 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 that can't happen. We are pro-life. We are for life. Well, well, then that ethic, though, cannot stop at the birth of a baby. The pro-life ethic then must move uh, and and inform how we look at things like uh, poverty, how we look at things even like immigration. I don't mean that it means just let everybody or nobody, but that's how we look at things. Like how what does it look like to be pro-life when it comes to issues of poverty and wealth or, um, uh, you know, criminal justice or other things. And, and now when we take that pro-life model that we look at the world through pro-life lenses, then we go, OK, what does that then mean for even the worst of the worst? I'm using air quotes here for for people who have committed the most heinous crimes, let alone those who are innocent and sitting on death row. But what about the ones who have actually committed those crimes? Is it only in those situations then that we are pro-death? And if so, then why? What is the driver for you? Because we already said that, that, that most studies and statistics and extensive uh, stuff that, that's been done around this topic show that the death penalty does not serve as a deterrent. It doesn't stop people from committing these crimes. So if it's not a deterrent, then what is it? What is it that drives our support of that? Is it retribution? Is it uh, an eye for an eye. What what is it? And on this, as as somebody who wants to have a pro life ethic, as it said from womb to tomb, as uncomfortable as it is, I want to have a pro life ethic, even for those who have taken the life of others, and say God can still work, God can still transform, God can still redeem. Let alone the people who might be sitting on death row, and having uh in, in being innocent, and having their life taken. From them. So uh, if you're pro death penalty, I would encourage you to wrestle with it. Uh, how does pro life, uh, your pro life ethic, how does your Christian ethic uh, push you in that direction? If you can answer that, I'd love to hear from you. So be it, you know, uh, as long as you're looking at it the right way. But for me, I don't see it. I just do not see it. So uh, powerful words here from Shane Claiborne. What does it look like for us to be pro life from womb to tomb? even in the hardest of circumstances. Coming up next, uh, a great article at the Gospel Coalition asked this question, are we really called as Christians to change the world? We're going to wrestle with that line next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. we
4: on the world to we keep on
1: everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us today as we wrestle with hard topics, as we have some laughs, and the goal of the show really is to say what does it look like to live in this world as Christ followers, where is it difficult, where, where are we doing well? I love the words of Mike Glenn about what's it look like to be lights in the darkness, uh, and to live out our Christian ethic and our Christian worldview, even with difficult subjects like we talked about just earlier, about the death penalty or other things. And so we want to really to come together and wrestle with things like that. And so uh, we are really glad to have you joining us. I was reading through the Gospel Coalition. Gospel Coalition is a wonderful website, gospelcoalition.org, gospelcoalition.org. We've had a lot of their their writers on the show they just crank out content uh, that really gets my mind working. Sometimes I'm like, amen to whatever they wrote there. And other times I'm like, no. And I disagree with things they say. And that's what makes for a good website. Uh, it kind of gets you thinking and gets you going. And with that in mind, a man by the name of Tim Shorey. Uh, Tim is a lead pastor of a place called Risen Hope Church uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, he wrote something called this, Christian, you don't have to change the world. And oh, man, this caught my eye because I, I, I've got to be honest with you. When I was more in my late 20s, early 30s and preaching on a regular basis, just starting to preach, or when I was a youth pastor before that, I constantly used language of like that. God wants to use you to change the world. You've probably heard that, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, God wants to use the church. He wants to use us to make change, to bring about change. God wants to use you individually to make an eternal difference in this world. But, but think about that phrase, you, uh, God wants to use you to, quote, change the world. That comes with a lot of pressure. And it comes with, a, with kind of a grandiose promise. I'm meant to change the world? and and I, as i have gotten older i got i've started to use different phrases god wants to use you to impact your world god wants to use you to uh to make a difference in your family uh in the people closest to you god wants to use you and and that kind of language versus this big the world and that's what tim Shorey is getting at here at the gospel coalition he writes i'm 62 And I've been a vocational pastor for 39 years. I serve in a smallest church of very diverse believers and commit around 55 hours per week to active ministry. I've got my hands and head full, and I don't know that I can handle much more. So yesterday's billboard wasn't helpful. It urged college students, he said, with one part encouragement and one part moral imperative, be the spark that changes the world. He says, I'm 40 years out of college, and that spark has yet to happen. Despite all I've done, the world remains the same as always, only worse. There's no ignited the world line in my resume. Yet isn't that what pastors and other Christians are supposed to do? Don't real leaders envision, implement, and bring about big picture, systemic, generational change? Perhaps some do, but I haven't. While some are supposedly changing the world, I've been reinforcing the faith of the pew, of uh, the Pew 6 brother who's battling pornography, the Pew 10 sister who's terrified of COVID, the Pew 9 widow who has three young children, the Pew 16 guy whose wife left him, and the Pew 2019 whose faith has hit the skids. I've kept busy trying to help my flock survive in the world and thrive in Jesus. So where does that leave me, he asks. And millions of other Christians and pastors like me who feel like failures uh, in a, quote, be the spark World. I love what he is writing here. I think this is such an important conversation. What does it mean? What are we even saying when we say we're supposed to change the world? It's this idea that I, little old me, can be, or should be used to just bring about this massive movement. That does happen. God does use certain people, some people, to quote unquote change the world, but everybody? Or is my calling to be faithful to where God has called me to be, to be faithful in this moment where I am placed with the people around me? Uh, Shory goes on to say, I'm a simple guy with an uncomplicated calling. Get saved. Love the triune God. Be sanctified. Love my wife, children, and neighbors. Treat people with respect and justice. Live a gospel-saturated life. Help others do the same. That's great. I'm not implying I'm the one who saves people, he says. I'm reformed. Uh, I'm way too reformed for that. Salvation comes from God. Uh, but he basically says, I'm called to love people. Tell them about Jesus. Baptize them. In the church, preach, teach, write, counsel, comfort, encourage. Be where I am. He says, repeat all these steps for several dozen hours per week and for 39 straight years in his life. And with a few tweaks, I'd say it is a calling virtually every believer has, from the mega church pastor to the mom with kids. But it's hard get work getting and keeping people saved, he said, helping them mortify their relationship with sin. While the world is pursuing mighty causes, I'm sweating it, trying to help my little flock survive and thrive. Man, I love this article. I wish I had read this when I was a little bit younger. He says, change the world, billboard vocabulary is momentarily inspiring, but it's ultimately disheartening for global change rarely happens. It is better to know that on the day of accounting, we will answer for ourselves, our family, our church, and our neighbors. I'm not advocating for ministry mediocrity or indifference, but for faithful, biblically guided ambition. I care about this very broken world and wish I could do more to heal its many wounds. But I know my limitations, he says. I know that I at least have to commit my finite vision and vigor to getting people saved and sanctified in my world, not igniting the world. I've made peace with that. And I hope all who serve faithfully in the everydayness of individual lives can as well. What a great word, man. This is, I'm going to send this to some people that I know because here's, here's the idea. We are not called to necessarily go I'm going to have this enormous impact. But think about this. The church is meant to be a collection of people, a family, a community living on mission together. We inspire one another. We encourage one another. We spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We pray for one another. And then we all get sent out from our local communities, our local churches. We get sent out into our context, my family, my workplace, uh, my activities, my neighborhood. And we get sent out to live, I love this phrase, to live as everyday missionaries where we live, work, and play. That not all of us are missionaries to the other side of the world. Not all of us are called to be missionaries who, who make this enormous impact. But I am called to live faithfully in my neighborhood, in my home, in my office, and that I need to look at my life in those terms. I I need to shrink it down a little bit because that doesn't move towards mediocrity. That moves towards intentionality that says, okay, I could get my mind around this now, and now I can focus. I can have a laser focus on the people I live with, the people I work with, the people I play with, the people that I'm with and then wrestle with the question, what does it look like to be an everyday missionary where I live, work, and play? And how can I encourage those in my church family, in my church community to do likewise? I totally get the sentiment. Like I said, I've preached it many times that we are called to change the world. But I, in fact, believe the church is called to change the world as it's made up of individual believers who are living faithfully in their world, in their context, where they have been called. Nobody is in the same spot as you. And I can go into my world as an everyday missionary going, okay, I'm going to represent Jesus to my family. I'm going to represent Jesus to my workplace, to my friends, to my neighbors. And then as we collectively do that, God is going to change the world. I think this is a really important idea about language and expectation and living as everyday missionaries. Well, coming up next, I want to close the show with an inspiring uh, kind of collection of a sermon that I heard from a pastor that I really enjoy by the name of Matt Chandler. As to asking this question, what do you do when there's a gap between your head and your heart? What's it look like to wait on the Lord? Those inspiring words coming from Matt Chandler as we close out the show next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody. Welcome back to the Common Good. AM1160 Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. I'm excited to do the show today. I'm doing it by myself as my co-host Aubrey Sampson is off on vacation, hopefully having a relaxing time. She'll be back with us on Monday. Uh, but man, I've really enjoyed today's show. Uh, we played a clip earlier from Tony Evans, and I kind of said, you know what, Tony Evans is one of those pastors, pastors. Uh, he's the pastor that speaker that, that other pastors listen to. Uh, they listen to his sermons and they try to emulate how Tony Evans at least speaks. And uh, he's someone to look up to. And, and I want to talk about another pastor that I feel that way about. Uh, he's also out of Texas. I, I would say this pastor, uh, when I listen to podcasts and other people preach, this is probably the person I listen to the most. And a lot of pastors that I know do that. A lot of people I know feel the same way. His name is Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler at the Village Church outside of Dallas, Texas, and just a phenomenally gifted, uh, God-ordained preacher. And I think from a distance, at least, I always cross my fingers because we've seen so many of these kind of people end up falling, but he seems in his writings and his speaking and everything that kind of goes out from him to be a really godly guy, loves his family, loves his church. And in fact, his church has begun Taking their campuses and spinning them off into autonomous churches going, I don't need to, they don't need us. And so I think that's always respectable to kind of give and, and, and empower other leaders. Anyway, that's kind of the background of Matt Chandler. And I want to end the show with a little bit of inspiration uh, and ask this question that he's going to ask here. What do you do when there's a gap between your head and your heart? What do you do when you know either what you should be doing or you know theological things, you know things that you've learned, but you aren't feeling them? You don't know them in your heart. They're not connecting. Uh, What does it look like uh, when you're in that sort of season? And with that in mind, I want you to hear these words from Matt Chandler.
0: What do you do when there's a gap Between your head and your heart. Throughout the scriptures, there's this phrase wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord isn't pleasant at all. In fact, in one of the most gut wrenching Psalms in the Bible, Psalm 42, David is literally in a fight with himself. He screams, why are you so downcast, my soul? Put your hope in God. So, as mine knows, don't make a God of that. Put your hope in God. Put your trust in God. Bow down before God. Serve God. Walk with God. Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Why aren't you buying into this? So, how do you wait on the Lord if this is you? You position yourself under the waterfall of grace and you wait while you walk in obedience. So one step at a time, one day at a time, asking for God to break your heart, asking for God to restore the joy of your salvation to you, asking God to make him your treasure, asking God, being honest about where you are, whether that be the desert or the low part or struggle, And you wait. Why? Because they who wait on the Lord, He will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and no longer be weary. They will walk and not grow faint.
1: My prayer, first of all, is that you find that to be inspirational. Uh, That you find those words from Matt Chandler to be okay. Okay. Yeah, maybe you're in a season right now where you feel like there's an emptiness. You feel like there's a dryness. You feel like there's a gap between your head and your heart. And you, you're wondering, how do I find peace while I wait on the Lord? Matt Chandler there uh, talks about this concept of waiting on the Lord. What does it mean to wait, to wrestle, to struggle? The book of Psalms, right? Like, you, where, where are you, God? And, and, and I, uh, we've all been in those spots. Some of you are in those spots right now. You're crying out to God, where are you? I don't see you. I don't feel you. I don't know you. Are you even here or have you abandoned me, Lord? We all go through those stages, but some of us are in that stage right now. COVID's been hard or there's been a death in your family. You've lost your job or you're just relationships have broken down illness, whatever else it might be. Or you're just having doubts. And you're going, I know these things that I've learned. I know these things in my head, but I don't know them in my heart. And the call of scripture here that, that Chandler reminds us of is to wait upon the Lord, to sit under the waterfall, to still worship, to obey. Here's is what is becomes really hard. A lot of times we go, fine, then I'm done with God. I won't obey. I won't do what he's called me to do. I will, I'm going to disengage from church. I'm going to disengage from worship. I'm going to disengage from reading scripture. I'm going to disengage from prayer. And, and that only compounds the problem. And I think what I want to leave us with today, what Matt Chandler reminds us of, no, it's in those moments that we, that we wrestle with God. We wrestle, but, but we, we, uh, we connect deeply with him. We still, we, we obey that long obedience in the same direction. We walk with him. We, uh, that imagery of sitting under the waterfall. We, we engage in the church. We engage in reading scripture. We engage in prayer. We cry out to him and go, I don't know where you are. I don't know where this is going, but, but I know that I want to know you deeply. I want there to be this connection between my head and my heart. I want to know you deeply. And I love that Matt Chandler ends there with that promise of the Old Testament, that promise of Scripture that God raises us up, right? That God meets us in this. That he raises us up to fly on the wings of eagles, right? To to know him more deeply, to to have that connection again between our head and our hearts. You know, the same way that I don't just give up on my marriage when there are times, there are seasons where Carrie and I, you know, it's like, oh man, are we just like roommates? Like we don't, we haven't connected in forever. What's going on? No, no. We're at those moments we go, so you know what? Let's throw the towel. And no, that's when we dive in more deeply. That's when we lean into one another and go, no, no, we got to, we're to go on a date. We, we got to connect. No, no. In much the same way, in much a bigger way here, uh, it's that same concept. That when it feels like, God, where are you? I just, I am dried up. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to be a part of church. I want to disengage from community. You it's, it's in those moments that we lean in under that waterfall, as Chandler said. And it's there that we begin to find peace while we wait for the Lord. And it is there that he meets us. And we are again renewed with the strength. That's what he talked about. This renewal, this strengthening. So if you're out there right now and you're struggling in this way, let me just encourage you. Lean in. Lean in. Don't give up. Don't run away. Continue to obey. Continue to walk in the ways of the Lord. Continue to be in your word and prayer. Continue to engage in church community and Christian community. Continue to cry out to him. Continue to wrestle. And the promise is that he will renew your strength that you will find him there, that he is near to the brokenhearted. I want to end that way with some encouragement, because I know there's probably some of you out there who are struggling. My prayer for you is that you would come to know the Lord deeply, that he would meet you in a deep and new way, that he would renew your strength as you wrestle and as you cry out and as you lean in to him. We're excited that you joined us today. If you missed any of the show, go get the podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Join us again tomorrow from four until six. Until then, I hope that you have a great day. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.